Welcome to the Crafting Character Podcast. I'm Steve Carter in, in association with my good friends at CDF Capital. It's an honor to be able to have a conversation about the craft of preaching and communication, but always ensuring that our character is leading the way. And today um, is going to be a special episode. I typically have senior pastors, teaching pastors, communicators that I just deeply, deeply respect for their craft and character. Uh, but today I thought it would be wise to bring in a New Testament scholar by the name of Dr. Scott McKnight and his daughter, who is a teacher and author herself, Laura McKnight Barringer. And I want to have a conversation about their new book, A Church Called Tove. But a little backstory. When I was a junior high pastor, I had two students who were the daughters of a man by the name of John Raymond. John Raymond was good friends with uh, Scott, and John told me that I needed to drive to Chicago and show Scott McKnight what I wanted to teach my junior high students. And I was like, you want me to just email the guy who wrote Jesus Creed and see if he'll like meet with me? He's like, oh, he totally will. So I email him, and I... He says yes, which surprises me. He tells me to go to an Italian restaurant. I walk into this Italian restaurant. He, it's, it's completely vacant. It's just him in the back corner, and he's just sitting there. It's like a mob boss. I walk in there, and I begin to show him what I want to teach. And in the most kind, honest, and as a scholar kind of way, he just took me to school. And I have just been a fan of his. I, I can just open up my library and say whether it's uh, kind of books like the letters to Colossians, one of my favorites, a community called Atonement. He did a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, Embracing Grace, Blue Parakeet, obviously Jesus Creed, and probably 75 to 100 more books that he's written. Uh, I'm thrilled. And then his daughter, Laura, um, she wrote a book in 2014, and it was a kid's book called Sharing God's Love, and it was literally Jesus' Creed for Children, and it was a book that uh, my daughter and I would read. Um, and so I've just been so blessed. She's actually kind of like ministered to my kids, and so um, to have them on to talk about a book that drops today, A Church Called Tove, um, it's an honor. Dr. Scott McKnight, Laura uh, Berenger, thank you for joining the Craft and Character Podcast having us yeah this is fun definitely definitely well so let I don't, I don't remember that it was italian restaurant so it had to be via veneto it was via veneto oh it was yes i used to eat up there when she was we would eat there on monday nights yeah they knew you they didn't you they didn't even bring you a, a menu they just brought you food and and uh so i was like this he Scott McKnight might be a mob boss because we were outside of Chicago, so I, I just didn't, I wasn't sure. But, um, I'll be a few times. <laughs> well, hey, you today are releasing a book, A Church Called Tove, and obviously, um, this is, I think, actually going to be such an important, important read uh, for pastors, for elder boards, for church staffs. Um, for people who are looking for a healthy congregation. Um, but why not just begin this conversation with uh, how this book came to be and why you decided to write it? Maybe, Laura, I'll start with you. Uh, give us a little backstory on this. Yeah, well, it all started for me, us, when the Chicago Tribune article dropped on March 23 of 2018. And read the article out loud, was in disbelief and kind of just rolled my eyes that this seems impossible. It's just ridiculous that Bill Hybels would have harassed women. No way. Um, and then started reading the article and recognized the names of the women as some of them as family friends, um, people that my dad had known for decades and it began the unfolding of this journey for both of us of how to uncover or figure out this wrestling with the story that Willow's telling and the story that the women are telling. And we know them to be people of character, but 
only one side could be telling the truth and it's disturbing either way, which one is lying. Um, and it led to a lot of family conversations and um, research into the work of Wade Mullen and Violet Slovenian and um, pestering my dad to share, to share his wisdom with the rest of us. So that was kind of a roundabout answer of how I got involved. Yeah, you know, and and for many of you who might not know, um, so I used to be on staff at Willow, and so when you talk about March twenty third, you talk about a Thursday night. I can um, go right back to where I was reading what seemed like the longest article that I've ever read in a newspaper, um, and just kind of as you begin to kind of allude to the 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 names and the stories, um, yeah, it was it was wild to begin to see um, the story unfold through the the lens of the Chicago Tribune. Um, Scott, how did, how did it hit you? Yeah, well, uh, Chris and I, I mean, I can remember exactly where we were too. I was, uh, we were on the back, in the back room of our house uh, where we customarily are at that time of the evening. And I start reading, I get a Tribune email about Willow Creek. I start reading it without saying a word. And I'm not two paragraphs in. I said, oh, Chris, this is bad. And so, you know, I put her onto the article. We both start reading it. Well, Steve, there's two things happened to me that night. The first thing is I've been here before. I've seen a lot of these stories. So they become pretty predictable. But when I saw that Vonda Dyer, who I didn't know, but, but Mark did, uh, uh, Laura's husband and Nancy Ortberg, who I did know, and Nancy Beach, who I did know. When I saw that they put their names on this story, I thought, this happened. This is true. Now, my wife's a psychologist, and it is extraordinarily rare that those would be the only three cases. So I immediately then thought, this is a pattern in this man's history. So from, from that point on, I believed the women. I thought they were telling the truth. Now, some of it could be explained in different ways, but uh, uh, I thought the, the chances of this all being fabrication for me at that point was zero. I'm willing to listen to the other side, et cetera. So, so we had to wait. Um, and I didn't say anything about it. But Laura and uh, would call, Laura and Mark, and Chris and I would talk. We talked a lot about this, Steve. It was deeply disturbing to us because of our time at Willow, because Laura met Mark at Willow. I mean, Willow was important to us. We attended for 10 years, and I, was, uh, I loved that church. And, um, and we weren't attending at the time, which made it just a little bit peculiar, but I, um, Laura wanted to talk more and more about it, and I, I had kind of had my fill of it, and I had to get ready for a trip to Turkey and Greece uh, with some students uh, who were taking a tour, and when we get back two weeks later, and I think it was early June, um, Laura always wrote down these dates, I, so I didn't have to worry about these sorts of things. Um, I called Laura, I think maybe the next day and said, what's going on with the story at Willow? And she said nothing. And Steve, it was like a light went off in me. And I said, well, something has to happen here because I have to do what I can do because these women are telling the truth and Willow is stalling. They're just trying to silence them by wearing them down. So I put together something that I had written a couple months, maybe a month earlier. No, I think I wrote it maybe two months earlier, I wrote up my ideas about what had happened just to keep it straight in my mind. I wanted to work it out. Uh, Laura and Mark had read it. Chris had read it. And then I decided uh, that I would edit that piece and post it on my blog. And um, to use pastoral expressions, it hit the fan. And I heard from all kinds of friends. Uh, I mean, it was a very big day in the sense that people were writing me letters, people were calling me, emailing me, texting me, comments were going pretty high on the blog. 
And I was hearing things from other people of what was going on at Willow. And, and to be frank, I was really happy that it made the, it made rounds at Willow because that's what I wanted to happen. I wanted Willow to hear this story because this is the story that I think is true. So uh, at that point, I was done. I was hoping I'd never have to say another thing. And then a guy named Steve Carter walked off the stage. And then uh, Pat Baranowski tells her story, you know, I mean, where she told hers and then you walked off. And I'm sitting there thinking, I, I got to write some more because people are asking me more questions. So I wrote a couple more blog posts. And uh, so I was involved in following the story. In a sense, I wanted to make sure I was accurate. I didn't want to misrepresent Willow. And it was only six months later that Laura and Mark and Chris and I were on vacation at Christmas. And uh, I told Laura that I was ready to write something about Willow because, Steve, this is really peculiar. I studied how the German pastors responded to the Holocaust. Wow. And what was eerie for me was that their moves, maneuvers, manipulations, their way of telling the story of what happened with the church and pastors in the Holocaust era under Hitler was the same kind of moves that Willow was making, Harvest Bible Chapel was making, that I had seen in other places. It was just a way of creating narratives that weren't true. False narratives, is, and this is a, hard, a, a big chapter in this book, uh, was a big part of why I got into this is I thought these false narratives, this, this has to be called out. This is wrong to gaslight women, to tell these stories. So I know that was a long-winded answer. No. Well, and I want to jump back to that, but maybe even just a little bit of context from my side is, um, you know, my, my phone blew up, obviously, when uh, March 23rd or 28th, when that um, first Chicago Tribune article dropped. And, you know, I got emails, hey, we're praying for you, da 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 But on that June 3rd, I believe it was, when you posted your blog on a Wednesday morning, I was getting breakfast and my phone was vibrating every four to five seconds. And I, and I literally was like, who died? And I, I just looked down and I'm like, people I haven't talked to like in years. And they're like, I'm so sorry, man. Just know I'm praying. And I'm like, what is going on? But I'm in this meeting and I'm like, I can't look at it, but then my mind's drifting. And finally, I'm like, I got to actually go use the restroom. Like, cause I just need to check my phone, you know, like I'm trying to be polite. And then I'm just sitting there and I'm just reading this and I'm like, oh man. And that, that literally, I mean, it was, it was, it, it was a game changer in so many ways because, and here's, here's why. And it's really, really simple for me is you to, but on that blog though, Scott, you were someone who was both inside Willow and outside. So you were someone who loved Willow, attended Willow, was a midweek new community speaker, teacher, um, a voice in the congregation. You, you knew Willow and you were bringing stuff to the light. There was nobody on the outside who was coming forward saying, hey, this is all like a lie. This is not true. Now someone inside, but outside. Someone who's inside yet respected on the outside as a scholar and the blog that you had. Um, and I think this pushed it to a level um, that you couldn't just try and move on from. You literally had to say, what are you going to do? And, and, and the way that you framed it was uh, the congregation was forced to make a choice. Someone's telling the truth. And like Laura just said, someone's telling the truth or someone, um, the women are lying or, or the church is lying. And that just caused ripple, ripple effects that um, obviously was a game changer for me in my process, but it was, um, it was, really, really important. Uh, 
I, I know that you guys were on vacation. I heard this on, a, on another podcast that you guys were talking, and maybe you had been reading about uh, these German pastors, and you and, and Laura started a conversation, um, basically, where this genesis of this book started to come. Was Am I right on that? Was there a vacation, Laura, that you remember? Yeah, well, my dad had been approached... I don't remember the time frame, but months before about writing a book just about Willow Creek. And I thought it was a great idea. I was pushing him to do it. And he was like, no, no, I'm not a church historian. Willow Creek's not going to open their doors and let me into all their records. And he didn't want to do it. Um, I had been encouraging him to write um, about the biblical side of it and about Matthew 18 and how he would um, explain how Willow Creek was not interpreting the Bible correctly. So that's kind of how it all started. The idea was in the back of our minds. I wasn't thinking I would be involved at all at that point. And then, yes, we were sitting on the beach. There was We had had our morning coffee and my dad sat down and said, I've got it. And he had a list of, we originally called, we're going to call the book Stories Churches Tell to Avoid Telling the Truth. And he had a list of, I don't know how many at the time. I want to say eight to 10 points that stories that churches tell to avoid telling the truth. And that's how it all started. And, and I and I wasn't planning on writing a book on this at all. I had plenty of things to do that I was working on. But as I read this book, I just started taking notes, Steve. I think, well, here's one. Here's another story they're telling. I'm thinking, I know this happened at Willow. And there were some that, of course, weren't, weren't like Willow at all. And, and I don't want to compare the Holocaust at all to Willow, but the strategies of covering up, uh, you know, our traces, the churches, the, the pastors and the church's traces, the desire to blame other people, all those things are just typical ways people refuse to admit the truth. And so I, I had this little card and I was reading... I was reading a book on the Reformation or Thomas Cranmer, I think. And I, I pull out this little card with my little handwritten notes. I said, Here, here's the ideas. And at that point, we started the idea. And uh, I had to map out a book to see if, if it was there. But um, to carry on with this part of, the, of our story, um, it was really important to me, Steve. I, I didn't want to write an expose. I'm not interested in the New York Times article writing like that, or even the Chicago Trip. Both of those journalists, Manja Brashear Pashman, and I can't remember the name of the lady in, uh, in New York, but those two writers, they did their work. I, I was not going to write an expose. I wanted to write something that I would call redemptive. And what struck me, and I think it was in the first blog post, is this church or churches or Willow or we all need goodness. We lack goodness. And, and that idea really struck a note. And many people, leaders, wrote me about this and said, what do you know about goodness? I want some more stuff about goodness. I thought, oh, now I'm in a, I got to sit down with the Bible and go through this theme a lot more. Because if I'm going to be accountable to other people for what I say, I got to study this. So I sat down with the, uh, with the Bible and looked through these references to tov, the Hebrew word for good and goodness. I looked, I looked up all these references, and I, I was struck by the abundance of interest in this term in the Bible. And it shows up with Jesus, of course, do good works. And, uh, you know, good, well done, the translator well done is actually the, just the Greek word good. Tov would have been in Hebrew or Aramaic. And Paul uses this in the Holy Spirit is the fruit of the goodness. And he expect he knows these people are full of goodness. He uses this term a lot. And it's a term, Steve, that we're a little bit afraid of in the Protestant evangelical world, because we've been taught by Augustine and Luther and Calvin that there is none good, no, not one. They've really pushed this. So if I say to you, if, if someone says, I want to become full of goodness, Many people would say, well, that's not appropriate for a Christian. There is none good. So I started studying this. I think this is a beautiful term. 
And so we studied, I studied goodness, and then we looked at the characteristics that we were convinced were toxic about willow and harvest and the Southern Baptist churches and sovereign grace and the Roman Catholic Church originally. I had I had quite a bit about the Catholic Church. And the editor said, the evangelicals don't need to have any reason to ignore their own problems by blaming <laughs> the Catholics. So we took almost all of that. And I had some really good stuff. Um, but um, I was, uh, I thought, we see these characteristics of toxicity. What are the alternatives to Tove? And that's that gave the book structure. And then Laura knew the, all the stories. She did that sort of, of research. And then we talked about those and we fit things together pretty well, I think. You know, I, and I've not read the, the the final like kind of book, you know, obviously it comes out um, today. But the, when I think about when you talk about the the scholars kind of understanding of Tove and goodness, you know, Luther and Calvin, um, you're right. There, there really is this sense of like almost this pushback, even in the fruit of the spirit. We'll talk about love and joy and peace and patience. We're not doing messages on on sheer goodness, you know, and, and I think C.S. Lewis is probably the closest person that I've ever seen talk about good. He talks about, but he's always talking about evil or badness. He'll talk about how evil's co-opted good or badness is spoiled goodness, which I always appreciated. As you start to look at, and, and this is unique for a Chicago audience, but two massive churches at the same time, I mean, we got to think honestly, f- between 50 and 70,000 people in the northwest suburbs of Chicago affected by a lack of Tove. Why do you think that happened in Chicagoland? And what do you think that like, literally, like, is there something in the water that kind of in the cultural Chicagoland area that could allow for this to take place? It's a random question, but I've always wondered two of these down the street from each other, massive influence, and just just breakdown. Any thoughts on that, Laura or Scott? I mean, I I don't personally think it has anything to do with the proximity or their location. Um, that's just my personal opinion. I mean, Dad, maybe you have something else to say, but I think that the leaders, the pastors lacked goodness and they happened to be living in Chicago. They could have been anywhere. What do you think, Dad? Well, um, I think that this could happen in every big city, every suburban area where you have mega churches. You know, Steve, Laura and I often said this, so you could edit this out if you want, but uh, I always thought you didn't fit at Willow. Hmm. A, a mega church pastor, in almost all cases, has to have a mega ego. I mean, you just start. I mean, I, I know a lot of these people, and and I, I I would say I am convinced that they have a regular struggle with holding their power. All right, because when you are a pastor of a church that big and that many adoring people. Look, it's it's Hollywood in some level. When you're on that stage, people feel important. I know what it's like. I remember speaking at a couple of those conferences and the lights are shining, you know. I'm the rhinestone cowboy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I've listened to that song. It's pretty fun stuff. Zen Campbell. Okay. So there is that, that sense of glory and honor and power and majesty. Um, and people are bowing your feet and they think everything you have to say, you know, it's a it's a head rush. Well, if you live in that very long, it's going to impact you. You have to fight this sort of thing. And uh, so I think it was. Uh, uh, it was good for Chicago. To have this implosion in two places, just because it tells these Christians who are so proud of their churches. One, one of my biggest beefs 
at Willow Creek. And that was while we were attending, supporting it, believing in it, and I was defending it, was its sense that uh, we are a very special church. In fact, we may be the best church in the world. And I, I despise that attitude. You know, if you live in Boone, Iowa, or in, you know, some small city in New Mexico, your local church is the most important church in the world. It's your only church. There is no such thing as the most important church. And yes, it has international impact and influence, but that sense of competition with others and high status value leads to major problems at the level of character and morality. And if it's not resisted, if you're not aware of it and resisting it, you're going to have troubles. See, this is this is why I wanted to, to dive into this conversation with you two, because to be a pastor in, you know, 200 people, 500 people, 1,000 people, 2,500 people, the, the more people, the more opportunities are coming, you know, backstage rooms. Uh, people handing you water, people getting you, serving you. And they're like, they, they want to serve you. And all of a sudden, it's like you are just literally um, getting just, um, you don't have to do anything except the one thing that you love to do, um, which is preach. And you've got great food. Um, you know, when Bono returns from tour, his wife checks him into a hospital for two days, uh, not a hospital, a hotel for two days. And she just says, hey, you need to detox um, because all of those adoring fans, we love you, but not like them. And that's not reality. And I, and I, think, I think that there is this, there's this pressure that I don't know if we're, I wasn't taught this in Bible college um, to look out for. I, I it, you know, you sign a $20 million loan with a bank and the bank's going to ask, who's the key man? Um, who's the key person that's basically got the power, who can raise the money? That just puts some of this subversive power to this leader that can say, you want me to bail? I'm going to do this. And all of a sudden, just these chips of power. You've got them just all of these little things that nobody sees, that even the evangelical machine, books, and um, all of these opportunities, and now you add social media, and it's, hey, get on. You got you to have the right social media. You got to have the right look. You got to have the right feel. You got to all of this pressure, and the amount of time that goes into that stuff could be time going into character development, and often it's not there. And so it, you just see it, and it's all under the guise of, man, this is kingdom good. This is kingdom opportunity. And really, it's whose kingdom are you building? And so I think for me, and just from your understanding, your research from the SBC, from the Harvest, from Willow, from just your, your, your you know, understanding of the word tov, what words of wisdom would you give for these young pastors, for these emerging leaders, for these senior pastors? Because I guarantee you, nobody wants to train wreck their life. Nobody wants to sabotage the good, but somehow it just happens and it keeps happening until books like this are written and show people a better way. So what words would you speak into that? Well, Steve, um, one of the more interesting discoveries for me was... Um, trying to counter a celebrity and hero culture. There's a lot of celebrity in, in, yeah. these, in these churches. And uh, I am absolutely convinced that Jesus was diametrically opposed to celebrity and hero thinking. Although the little, the little book by Dave Ferguson of building a hero culture that everybody's a hero. When everybody's a hero, no one's a hero. That's a good thing. Um, but um, it was a use of a word that was okay, but in, as a general word, it's not. Is that this whole celebrity culture thing I, made me start thinking a lot about service. That the opposite of a celebrity, according to Jesus, you know, 
you people want to be like the Gentiles who lord it over others. That's, that's the power of domination, power through fear. That's narcissism, etc. You want to be like that, but this is not going to be among my followers. It's not going to be this way. Uh, and he says this, you know, uh, the greatest people in you are going to be your servants. And this, you know, this is what the word minister means. And, and he says, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. Now, when that becomes the paradigm, and then we just have to turn a few pages to Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus gave himself for the sake of others, that the secret to avoiding a celebrity culture is to heroize a servant culture. But to heroize it, you can't give people praise for being servants. And this is what happens, Steve, is, you know, the pastor uh, is suddenly talking about, oh, I'm, I'm so thankful the Lord has given me a heart for the homeless. And then all of a sudden, the pastor is telling everybody about their homelessness. And now they've become a hero and a celebrity who's serving the homeless. And now all of a sudden, it's no longer service. It's hero making. It's patting yourself on the back in a platform. And everybody at the church is clapping for you. Where did that clap? I, I don't like the clapping and applause. I, I, I bring this up all the time. But I think pastors, to work at this in, in a Tove culture, need to practice service in total silence. That no one knows about it but the spouse. And they need to surrender leadership positions um, and leadership authority on a, in, a, in a disciplined way. You know, Andy Crouch tells the story that every, I think it's every summer for a month, he, he does a couple things that are just sort of designed to sabotage his career. Um, he doesn't allow himself to become a kingdom maker. So a student calls me one day, and he's a very talented young guy. He's a, he's a future Steve Carter, you know? He says to me, I could be Bill Heibel someday. What can I do now as a young pastor not to do this? And I said, I'm going to tell you to do a couple of things that you probably think are wrong and weird. But I, I said, you need to practice losing in elder meeting discussion. Now, I said, don't lose at something that's really, really important. But don't think that everything that you want to do is really, really important. Practice losing. Practice surrendering to other people's decisions, even if you're not absolutely sure it's the right thing to do. But you know it's probably a good thing to do, but it might not be what you would want to do. I said, practice that. And I said, you need to surrender the pulpit. You need to find other people who are better than you preaching in that, in that pulpit so that your people don't think you're the greatest thing on planet Earth. And I think this is the, the sort of habits of servitude and habits of humiliation that allow your congregation to know that you're not the end of the world. And then maybe take time off and say, I, I, I won't make any decisions with the elders for six months. And they're not going to consult me. I'm not going to be asked. If they do ask me, I'm going to tell them I'm not going to be involved in the decision. Now, there's a lot of people who think that's wrong. I think it's right in a celebrity culture because you got to build other voices. And one of the strengths of churches with multiple pastors is no one becomes the hero. I, I, I've said all. I think those are pretty good points, but I don't, that's what I have to say. What, what do you have to say to that, Laura? Yeah, I just want to make one comment that I'm, I'm not a pastor. I'm not, I'm in the audience, right? And I feel like there's some responsibility too with the um, community in the church, what do I call it? The church attenders, the members, because I, I'm guilty of this too at Willow Creek where I felt like the closer I got to the inner circle at Willow, and there is an inner circle, sadly, it, there was when I was attending, 
I would feel important. And I'm guilty of that too. And, and we talk in the book about how the congregation is an agent too of the celebrity. And we would, we would, we would stand up and clap for people on stage. We would clap for the speaker. We would clap for, it was like, we would clap 10 times during the service and where Bill Hybels would walk by and I would be like, Oh, it's Bill Hybels. You know, my, my husband's like, he's not a celebrity. I'm like, yes, he is. I just, (laughs) so I don't know. I just want to say that it's not just the pastor, but it's all of us contributing to this culture of worship of people on the stage. Yeah, I think that's so true. And, you know, when I, when I was at Mars Hill in Grand Rapids, you know, I was there early on and that, you know, happened to be the fastest growing church. People would say like at one point, it just, it was a rocket ship. I mean, there's just more and more people showing up. And I think in some ways, uh, Rob Bell just like didn't want anything to do with that. But I realized, um, I think he didn't want to like address it. Um, and I, and I, I think as I look back going, gosh, I wish someone could have gotten up and pastored the community and said, Hey, we're, we're a bunch of broken people and we're going to put a whole bunch of pressure on a couple of people. That's not fair to them. And they're normal people just like you and me, you know, just in some way of how to shepherd a congregation to see reality, um, to see what we get to see on stage is somebody's spiritual gifts that's just unleashed. That's amazing. But man, I think the, the, the congregation has been formed and shaped to celebrate and to cheer and to be so excited about their person, their pastor, whether male or female, that's that, their, their guy. And I think what you're saying is so, so important. Scott, I want to come back to what you shared because you mentioned Philippians 2, and I, I love that. Um, it was one of my mentor's uh, verses. He would just always read to me every time we were together. But, he's, but it's just this, that, that few lines, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And, and one thing I realized is, man, um, Within me, within many I, I know of just fantastic communicators and, and preachers, there is that ambition. There is that, that desire um, to make, to kind of make a Jesus famous. I remember people saying, we, our job is to make Jesus famous, make his name great. And somehow um, the glory ends up getting shifted to the pastor. And I, and I would keep coming back to this, this passage and realizing, okay, um, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vacancy, but rather in humility, value others above yourself. And I realized like, I, I can't just try to be humble. Um, today I'm going to be humble, but really humility is the, is the byproduct of doing what you said, actually serving another or serving and not telling the world. Serving not to create a story for applause <laughs> on a Sunday, but literally going, no, no, I'm trying to have the same mindset as Christ. And I, 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 I think that so often people are trying to push for more influence rather than more humility. Yeah. You know, Steve, um, I think of the Apostle Paul on this. Paul was criticized by the Corinthians because evidently he didn't have really good rhetorical skills according to their measure of great rhetorical and oratorical skills. And they heard in the, in the open markets of Corinth, all kinds of great speakers. All right. So they didn't think Paul was quite up to snuff. Yet when you read Romans, you go, this guy's pretty good. He's pretty clever. He pulls out a lot of rhetorical moves. And you read Philemon, and you think, this is absolutely brutal. Philemon has been cornered. You know, it's sort of like that song, Killing Me Softly with His Words. And you go, whoa, he just nailed Philemon Then says, and I want you to do this because you want to. I could (laughs) tell you you have to do it, which is a way of saying you do. 
But he says, I, so he's rhetorically gifted. But I, I just have this sense that when Paul saw the audience wanting from him a demonstration, an exhibition of his rhetorical and oratorical skills, he stopped and he just told them about Jesus and Jesus dying. So he, in a sense, practiced the discipline of humiliating himself in public so that the people would not adore him as a great speaker. And, and I can tell you, this is really a genuine temptation. Steve, I have a commonplace book. Most people don't even know what this is. A commonplace book is an old strategy of storing the best quotes you see from the best writers you find. And every now and then, when I'm speaking in a place, I decide to pepper my sermon or my talk with some of these great quotes. And I pull out stuff from people, and people are just thinking, wow, that is really impressive. And you know what? I know it's impressive, and I know it's the best I can do. But I don't do that hardly ever. I'm tempted to do this every time I speak because it's so fun to pull out an amazing quotation from G.K. Chesterton and Marilyn Robinson and Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald in the same sermon. People think, this guy has read everybody, right? They're impressed. And then you tell the right story at the right time and you pull out the right Bible verse and they're just thinking, wow, I can never be like that. Well, that's, that brings a lot of glory to us. And you talk to, you know, we're talking to a lot of pastors right here now. You know, I, want, I think we should try to do a good job, but the, the good job should not be one where we're constantly being adored for our incredible skills. And look, I know a lot of preachers with incredible skills. I mean, they are really good. But do we, do we by doing our best, bring more glory to ourselves than we should. I say, yes, we do. Practice that. I say to the young people who are trying to get into Tove, practice just being plain and simple as the truth instead of adorned and decorated with the best of quotations. So you can quote N.T. Wright, and you can quote Douglas Campbell, and you can quote John Golding. That's impressive. But people, you know, that's impressive rather than compelling with the gospel. That's so good. That's so good. You know, Laura, one of the reasons I was really grateful that you were going to be on this podcast, obviously, you know, you, you co-wrote this book, but you are um, a congregant um, and you do show up. You know, when you were at Willow, I, I, I remember seeing you in the parking lot after services and we didn't know each other. We had a, a mutual friend, but I just remember, oh yeah, this, this person like loves the, their church. My question for you is if you could speak to a pastor and right now there are a whole bunch of them listening going, hey, this is, this is the kind of pastor that I long to receive from. This is the kind of pastor that for me represents what Tove and what I believe the scriptures are all about. Um, I mean, I think pastors often hear from, you know, their pastor buddies um, about what kind of people they need to be. But I think someone as well-read, someone just as, as humble and intelligent as you, like, what would you say? This is what I'm looking for, for uh, the kind of pastor that I would receive from. You know, it's funny um, that you ask that. So when Mark and I, my husband and I left Willow Creek, we, we left long before the allegations became public. We did not know about that at all before we left. We began attending my parents' church, which is a little Anglican church, a little Anglican congregation. And I, I was stunned at, I it was like my eyes opened to how toxic Willow had become for me. And, um, people ask us, how is this church? What is it like? And we say, it's literally the opposite of Willow Creek. There are no, there's no programming. There's no screens. There's no clapping. There's nothing. It's everything that you could think of that would be the opposite. That's what this little Anglican congregation is. And 
I would, if I could say um, anything about a pastor, I'm thinking of our pastor, Jay. One thing that really stands out to me that has always meant a lot to both Mark and me is that he knows our name. He knew our name right away. He knows who we are. He, I feel known by him. Um, He knows what's going on in our lives. He is very humble. Um, He's a good speaker, but that's not really what it's about. We're not even told at our little Anglican congregation. We don't even know who's speaking those coming week. Like at Willow Creek, I'd be like, oh, I don't really like that speaker. So I'm just going to go for a bike ride with the neighbors. This, you know, we, we are not even told who's speaking at the Anglican churches. That's not what's important. But if I could, if I could say anything, it would be that just that Jay knows us. He knows my name. He cares about us. He asks what's going on in our lives. He's not too busy or important to say hello. Um, after the service, he hangs out just like the rest of us with, you know, we're all having coffee together and he makes a point to come and say hello. I love that. That's so beautiful. And I think that's so, yeah, that's so, so important. I, I think that this book is so important, not just for pastors, but also if you are a pastor listening to this, I think you should buy one for every one of your board members, every one of your deacons, every one of your elders, and to have a conversation about it. Scott, talk about why you think, because I I think that, man, if a bunch of elder boards could actually have common language for a Tove culture, what that could actually mean uh, for ministry and and for uh, a culture of of goodness. But is there any other reasons why you think, man, elders need to see this, need to read this, need to understand this? Well, um, a featured quotation in our book is from David Brooks that we should never underestimate the significance of the culture in which we work to make us a person that fits in that culture. So elders, deacons, leadership teams, pastors, whatever you want to call them, they have a responsibility of nurturing culture. And not only that, they are nurturing a culture, whether they know what they're doing or not, they're creating culture. So, I think they need to be very conscious of, of the impact of leadership decisions, of leadership strategies, messages being sent. You know, we hired a new pastor and nobody in the church knew about this. Why did that happen? Is that the kind of culture we have where people just make decisions? We don't get to be a part of it. So all these, uh, uh, I, I would say that they need to realize the impact of their culture. The other thing is, I think success is the primary model of culture in churches. If the, if the seats are filled, butts in pew and money in the plate, those are the two marks of churches. That's not what a church is. It's not measured ultimately by how many people come or how big the budget is. It is measured by how Christ-like people are becoming. And I think that that, that if we can get leaders to read this, they can influence a congregation. The congregation may say, hey, we've been committed to this a long time. Where have you been? Or they may say, you know, we haven't thought about this. We're going to go find another church that's going to focus on big numbers. That's fine. But they can think, first of all, of influencing a church. The second thing is then they can begin to think about character, about formation, about becoming Tove themselves, becoming a pocket of Tove that influences other people. And I think that's, uh, I, would, I would love for the elders to read it, not just so they can say, now we want to teach this to our church. That, that's a big mistake. I don't study the Bible so that I can teach it. I study the Bible to hear from God. Mm. And pastors need to read books to see how it impacts them before they can figure out how to teach it to congregations. And this is the misuse of knowledge is that so that we can become an agent of information rather than transformed in character. So I, I would say that they need to read it in order to work on a Tove culture themselves in their own heart, and then they can help 
create a pocket of Tove among the leaders and then help create more Tove in the church itself. So I, Steve, I just, I love your idea that we want to get leaders to read this book in churches, the board, give it to every board member and, you know, don't read it in one weekend. This is, this is something that's going to take, I had a student, a PhD student in a class I'm teaching. He's got a PhD from somewhere else in organizational transformation. And I'm talking about Tove and he's, he's, totally alert you know you know when you're talking to someone who who seems to really know what you're saying and then I realized he knew a lot more than what I was <laughs> and he says to me uh you've got some really good terms says you could use better terms from organizational transformation theories and then he said this it takes seven years to transform the culture of an organization he said you can't do it just by teaching a series of sermons. This is going to be a project for churches that is going to take a long time, and that's okay. We are being made in the image of Christ. We are being transformed into the image of his son, and it's going to take eternity, all right? So we're in this process of of Tove transformation, and I would say get people together to discuss this and start thinking about it. And focus for a month on uh, that we're going to be a culture that focuses on service. How can we as leaders become agents of servanthood rather than celebrity? How can we become a people first rather than an institution first culture? How can we block our pastor from thinking he's got a big head? You know, that those sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, those are some ideas. Seven years. I mean, you just think about that. That is, I mean, the level of commitment, because often, you know, you're thinking like, oh, we did that series. Oh, we did that. that. That was a nice little series on a church called Tove. And now we're on to, you know, the, the next awesome buzzworthy s- series. I want, I want to say one other thing. I think you mentioned something, um, butts and bills. So if you think about like butts and seats, uh, bills coming in, that's kind of like, you know, how it's. I think there's one more B to add to that, so this will show that I am a preacher, three Bs, but um, I think that there, if you can show baptisms in the non-denom world, that is the proof, the butts and the bills. And if one of the butts are down, but the baptisms are up, it's okay. Um, if the bills are down, baptisms are up, it is it, it, a little less. It's not okay. But like, what I've seen is how baptism often can become something that we point to to showcase we're doing everything right. It's a cover for butts and bills, if that makes sense. I mean, in the evangelical world, churches that can tell stories of many conversions, they win. And I think this was Willow's secret, is all those conversions of people from the Catholic churches in that area who now got baptized, and they had a story to tell. I was not a Christian. I was in a church, and now I'm a Christian. It's all because of Willow. That is that is gold in the non-denominational evangelical megachurch mentality, is that we are successful at evangelism, and that proves we're doing everything right. Yeah. So I, I, I totally, okay, I'm going to add a B. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna, I want to. Bills and baptisms. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, okay, uh, I want to ask another question, and and this this one will be a little bit personal in a sense. Laura, you mentioned um, the celebrity factor of Willow. Um, you know, you see the pastor walk by, and you kind of like step back and be excited. Or and and Scott, you've been around this world for so many years, and you've seen um, pastors rise and pastors fall. I think um, whenever whenever someone gets murdered on a street and they go to the neighbor and they like, or, or the person's a murderer and they go to the neighbor and they're like, hey, what did, what did you think? They're like, he seemed like a normal guy. Seemed like a good guy. I didn't, nobody ever says, oh, I knew he was a murderer. Like I knew that person was a bad dude. I think what's so amazing and so difficult is 
every, and it probably, and I feel like in the last two years, every week I'm getting a phone call um, from someone across the country, um, from some staff person across the country that that's just acknowledging there's something sick. And yet their answer and description after it is, but there's so much good. There's, there's, so, there's so much good, or this person did so much in my life. Um, and there is this, this war and there is this, this tension within this person to actually name it or call it out or speak about it because they almost feel like if I do that, I'm dismissing the tove in another person or the good of what that person's been able to do. You, you both have walked this in a prophetic way and truly like this story would not have ha gone the way it did without you two and the boldness that you both took. How did you, how do you handle that tension that some good things happened and some bad things happened? How, how do you handle that? Um, I don't know if that question makes sense, but I, I just, I, I feel as if that is one of the biggest things that I kept hearing. There's 90% good at Willow or there's, you know, 85% good at this place. How, how do you make sense of that? I've never felt like I understand the struggle. I've never felt like it has to be one or the other. Okay. I've always felt like there are, I know some wonderful people at Willow Creek with pure hearts and they are there to, they are there for the long haul and they are Christ-like and they are trying to live and serve with humility and look at all the good that came and still comes out of Willow Creek. It's also had some toxicity because of the lack of goodness. And for me, I don't struggle with, with that. I know that there's tension, but I understand that there can be good and bad at the same time in the same organization. Dad, what do you think? Well, well theologically, uh, we don't have a problem with this uh, in the Protestant tradition and in the Catholic tradition is that uh, people are sinful and they are saintly. Uh, that, so we have both. Um, but we we do, um, I want to say a couple of things. One, we do tend to valorize, idealize Christian leaders in some of these churches. And we put them at a level of sanctification, holiness, whatever, Christian competency, that when we discover that they are sinful, we are crushed. Well, that's our fault. And that is not just our fault, that's a leader's fault who hasn't been, let's say, authentic uh, in the process. So let me say that this was a, this for me was a really important part of this book. I don't think it'll get much attention, but I, I think it's really important. Israel told uh, us, told its story every year. One of its most significant feasts is called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Okay, every year, Israel had a responsibility to go to the temple and confess their sins. We in evangelicalism think we did that. We confessed our sins. That part of the game is over. All right, now we do have this 1 John 1, 9 verse, that if we confess our sins, he is right, good and righteous, etc., to forgive us our sins. So we do believe we got to confess our sins. We do something, we screw up, we got to confess it. But we do not have a theological worldview of public confession of the sinfulness of who we are as a people. And as a result of that, when someone sins, we're shocked. All right, now let me say this. I'm an Anglican. Laura's an Anglican. Every Sunday, we confess our sins in church. Now, I don't know that this means that, that Anglicans have less prone to have heroes who fall from sin. I, I don't think that happens. But we have created a pattern of thinking and theology and worship 
in which we yearly announce or, or weekly announce that we're sinners and we need God's forgiveness. And communion is all about that, all right? Many of these churches don't celebrate communion very often either. Why? It gets in the way. It takes time. Furthermore, it's morbid to sit around and think about your sinfulness. This is part of the biblical worldview. You're not going to get away from this, Israel said. Every year, we're going to have, you're going to drop all your jobs. You're going to go on vacation, but it's going to be go on a vacation to think about your sinfulness, to afflict yourselves, and to confess your sins. So I would say, I'm not even sure where we got started, but I'm really enjoying thinking about this. <laughs> Is, uh, is I think we need to develop a, a Yom Kippur moment in churches, um, a Yom Kippur mentality and worldview, where if, if a pastor sins, we would say, yeah, we confess that every week. Uh, we're sorry to hear that, but he's a sinner, and he's never embraced the idea that he's not, because we do this every week. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. That might be your next book right there. Just saying. Just saying. He has a great chapter on it in our book. And what, just one comment. A couple um, times we heard people say that there's a stone apparently at Willow Creek that says that Bill Hybels and Lynn founded this church in whatever year it is. And we heard a couple people say, take that down. We don't want to be reminded. And my dad said, no, 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 no. You leave that up. And every year... Every time you walk by it, I mean, every time you walk by it, you are reminded of what happened. It is a part of your history. It's not something that you just forget about and move on. It, it's who you are. You need to own it and you need to for, ask for forgiveness every time you walk by it. Wow. You know, that, that reminds me, and I'll, I'll close with this, um, but that reminds me a few years ago, I had the, the privilege to go to the Vatican. So I was able to, to go meet the Pope. And um, they said we could bring like a, a jersey. I saw I that. did. I did. I did. They, they said I could bring it. I did. They said they could bring Steve Carter giving the Pope a Cubs jersey. It's, it's right. It's right. Yeah, it is Francis. So so he was he's a Jesuit. And I knew that Chris Bryant had gone to USD, which is a Jesuit school. So um, he he. Uh, this you guys will think this is funny and many people who don't like baseball won't but as i was giving it to him a whole bunch of the the cardinals walked by and the cardinals are like boo go cardinals as they point to themselves you know it was so funny but um the night before we got to meet with uh pope francis's uh social media person and he happens to be this uh catholic historian knows all about the the orders and so I'm, I'm just peppering him with questions, and, and this is before anything, or I knew anything about the Willow stuff. I was just was curious, and you know, you think about uh, Borgia, who was a bad pope, um, had kids, and you know, basically bought the role, and and so I'm like, how does the Catholic Church make sense of bad popes, like people who just weren't what you would want from a pope? And he, he said something very similar to what you said, Laura. He just said, uh, it happens. And unfortunately, um, we, have to, we have to honor its truth that we allowed that to happen. But he said, here's the best part that's come from Borgia and some other bad popes. is typically the few years after it, a new order rises up to kind of combat the brokenness that we saw in that Pope. And he's, and he talked about the Jesuit order as a response. And he started to, and he just started talking. And I thought, that's a really interesting idea is, and I really, and this is, this is me just kind of speaking my heart is I'm hoping that this book becomes a new order for church culture. That's, that, that this season, a word that has been put on the shelf, a word that has been forgotten, um, a culture of winning and achieving and competition and building will just be replaced with sheer goodness. And I, I, I'm hoping that people will just, pastors will take it, an honest inventory, self-inventory of their life and go, gosh, this has is, this is become about me being served rather than actually serving.
and this culture isn't what Jesus longed for. And so um, from the bottom of my heart, um, thank you for writing this book. Thank you for the challenge to really push people um, to embrace what Tove is all about. If people wanted to learn more about you, I know there's the Kingdom Roots podcast. I know there's Northern Seminary. Is there a, is there a website where they can go to get this book? Uh, any any words of how they can follow both of you? Well, I have a blog at Jesus Creed at Christianity Today. Uh, we don't have a website for the book. Uh, at least I don't. Maybe I don't think Laura does. Yeah, uh, we don't. No, have no. <laughs> you can go to Amazon. You can go to Barnes and Noble. Go to Tyndale. Uh, go to your local bookstore. Go to your church bookstore. If your church bookstore doesn't have it, have them order it. Unless you're at Willow Creek's bookstore, they're probably not going to order it. <laughs> um, what about you, Laura? Is there any any other any other places to find you? You're you're on social media. You're on Twitter often. Social media. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Um, yeah, I'd love to talk to people if they want to talk more. Um, awesome. I'm easy to find on social media. Well, hey, thanks again for for joining me. Really, really appreciate it. And um, if you have liked this episode, feel free to share it. Uh, feel free to go to iTunes, rate it, subscribe, or you can always go to craftingcharacter.org and learn more about the unique events and cohorts we have to help communicators learn a little bit more about this culture of Tove, but really embrace getting better at their craft, but ensuring that their character leads the way. Have a blessed week, grace, and peace. Peace.